I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there or meet them at a trade show or even have a conference call so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them now at 514-488-3618 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects. Hello, this is Chad Chancellor with Next Move Group. Before we begin today's podcast, if you've been enjoying our podcast series, please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That'll sure help us out. We'd appreciate it a whole lot. Welcome to this week's episode of the Next Move Group. We are Jobs Podcast. This is Chad Chancellor, co-founder of Next Move Group. In the next two weeks, we've got really a special treat for you. We've got a sneak peek behind the scenes curtain of something that our movement members are receiving on a monthly basis. So you all have been listening to our podcast series really over the last year. And for our movement members, we're taking these podcasts to an even greater level. We're actually doing bios of highly successful economic developers. And our bios get a whole lot more in-depth than our normal shows. We really try to figure out what are the success habits of our guests in these bio shows so our members can learn from those. And so the next two weeks, we have got two special guests for you, two people who have achieved heights within economic development that many people would only dream of, and you'll understand both as we talk to them. Both of them are from the state of Mississippi. So the the one for next week, we're going to save as a surprise for when it comes out. But the one this week, we actually released to our movement members last week. And this is David Rumbarger. David is the president and CEO of the Community Development Foundation in Tupelo, Mississippi. Tupelo has a model that many people have studied. I mean, literally, people studied the Tupelo economic development model. David's been there 19 years, landed a Toyota plant, and is a total legend within the business of economic development, a man that's just highly, highly respected. So in this episode, we're going to go in-depth with David to really understand what is his story what are success habits that he had? Little things that he does on a daily basis that makes him successful. The rest of our bios will only be available to movement members, but we wanted to give all of you a little preview of what these are like. So with that being said, we're going to welcome in a man who, again, is one of the most highly respected economic developers in America and runs one of the best organizations in America, David Rumbarger from the Community Development Foundation. David, thank you for being here today. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, David, this is a real honor, and uh, I know you've you've had some great jobs within Mississippi and Alabama in economic development. Now you run what many people view as the model for economic development anywhere. I know people go study Tupelo, how y'all do things. So tell us uh, how you sort of stumbled into economic development, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Community Development Foundation. 
Well, when I came out of school back in uh, 1982, uh, I hired on at Alabama Gas as a cadet engineer. And back then, cadet engineers were the ones that programmed the mainframe. You remember that you never had to deal with mainframes, Chad. You know, all the punch cards and everything. But the reason that the new guy had to do that is because uh, you had to set up all the uh, new accounts. And it took it took me like a day and a half to set up a new account and put all the information in the computer. So one day uh, the boss came back to the, what we call the bullpen area. And he said, okay, somebody's got to go to Montgomery for a meeting. Uh, the new governor, which was uh, George Wallace at the time, he just got elected again, wants to talk about this thing called industrial development. Well, you know, low man on the totem pole, I'm the one that drew the straw because you didn't get to spend the night. You just got per diem for the day, go drive down and drive back. So drove down and met the ADO folks back in 1981, 82. Red Etheridge and several folks and started to learn about industrial development back then. Back then, the most successful economic developers for ex-military guys smoking cigarettes and, and, and uh, stogies and uh, drinking a lot of hard scotch, you know. I still know some of them, but they work for the railroad now. <laughs> That's true. Well, I know you worked at several utilities in Alabama, and I think you made your way to Hattiesburg, if I remember. So how did you, how'd you end up in Mississippi? Lovern called in a recruitment phase and said that Hattiesburg was looking for somebody. I was going to make a speech in New Orleans. And I said, listen, John, I'll, I've never been to Hattiesburg except for a football game when our team met the Golden Eagles. I said, but I'll drive through and uh, let you know if I want to interview. Well, I drove through and it's uh, this is the nicest town you ever want to be in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Great medical community, great university community, vibrant downtown, lots of nice people. And so I got home. My wife said, what do you think? I said, well, I think we're going to have to go interview there. Great people, met some wonderful fr friends that are still friends today, now 30 years later. Well, you're right about the medical community. My brother's a nurse practitioner there. He's been there at Forest General 20 years, I guess, and he's, he's loved every minute of it, as far as I can tell. Well, Lowry Woodall was on, and Bill Ray, both of the medical giants there in Hattiesburg, were on the selection team, got to know them well during that process. Well, talk about Community Development Foundation, because I know it's a little bit different model than some may have, and people literally study you all. You've been there 20 years now. So tell these folks really what the secret sauce is there. Well, there, there's a couple of things that, you know, we always say people come looking for a form and function, and they come looking for structure. And really, we've, we've changed our structure over the years, but there's been two things that have maintained stability. One is a, a staff stability, you know, people that aren't looking for the next rung on the ladder that when they come here that they want to learn, they want to earn, they want to uh, really plow back into the community. And we control some of our own destiny by having uh, land and buildings and other assets, uh, as well as having our, our organization. And the next one's, uh, we got a legacy of community leadership. George McLean started it back in 1948. Uh, with the newspaper and CDF, and everybody follows in those footsteps. And there's been a dozen, half a dozen books written about George McLean and his leadership style, and it's active leadership. It's participating. You know, he used to walk down Main Street and pull business owners out of their shops and say, I need $100 from you back when $100 was like a million dollars because we're going to go buy a bull to artificially inseminate all these cows around here to have a better cow stock. So he did what it took, whatever that was, to make sure that the community was a, a town and market town so that people came here to trade, people came here to buy goods, people came here to get jobs. And consequently, we're still in the 20s as far as uh, manufacturing penetration when the na nation's like, what, seven and a half, eight point. You know, it's, right. it's very low. I mean, we're three times the national average in manufacturing, which it's a very blue collar town, non-union, 99%. So that's our secret. 
And Hunter Aycock on your staff posted something that Mr. McLean said today. Uh, one of his quotes, one of his famous quotes, Hunter put on Facebook. I saw this morning before we got on the before we got on this video. So it's obvious you all still think about his philosophy on a daily basis. Well, people that knew him back then, there's a very few of them left, and said he was a pretty hard man. He was uh, driven. Uh, he worked all the time. Taught Sunday school for 48 years uh, every Sunday. Didn't take many vacations, uh, had black wall tires and an old Pontiac, you know, <laughs> threw papers out of it when he needed to. He, he bought a, the old saying is he bought a bankrupt newspaper from a bankrupt bank in 1938. Hmm. And, you know, it was a weekly at the time and made it a daily and made it into Now Create Foundation. Our sister organization is there. Corpus is about $120 million, but it started with George McLean's uh, newspaper. They are the lar they're the only stockholder of that newspaper. It's worth about $26 million. Well, and we have folks listening from all over the country. And the last economic development job I had before starting Next Move Group was Paducah, Kentucky. And they had been to visit Tupelo. Yep. I mean, when I yep. got there, they were telling me this is what Tupelo does. It's, you know, and I was a Mississippi boy, so I didn't need a whole lot of, I knew what all <laughs> y'all did. But I mean, when I say people study it, I'm not just saying that, David, to brag on you. I mean, they study your model. And that's something that folks from around the country should hear. Well, we're flexible. We, we change a lot. We operate off of a 10-year plan that we localize to a one-year goals and objectives, and we're always constantly moving toward those goals and objectives. Every year, every chairman, every board has an accountability with the community on what they do and when the community runs into issues. So we just did a, a three-day uh, workshop on the back-to-business uh, loans that Mississippi has gotten, and we saw over 173 small and minority businesses and the average grant amount was about $5,000. So we right at a million dollars is what we were able to help small businesses apply for to the Mississippi Development Authority. And that's just, that's part of our, our community and community development foundation. They weren't all members, probably only about 15% of them were members, but they were companies from all around the region that needed help filling out the paperwork. Well, speaking of your successes, I guess y'all are best known for the Toyota deal. So he landed a Toyota OEM. What's that been about 10 years? I know time flies. Been long. It seems like it was yesterday. It's probably been 10 years now. It was uh, February 24th, uh, 2007. So Wow, 13 years. 13 years. Wow. Well, tell us really what, what you learned through that process, how you learned to, to land a big one. That's everybody's dreams winning one of those. Well, uh, like my drill sergeant said, prior planning prevents poor performance. And I had some really good partners in Grace Swope and Randy Kelly and Joe Getty with uh, NMIDA and others. And we put all those people together in the brightest minds on a strategy that uh, Mike Mullis told me was a harebrained and it would never work. But uh, we had no choice. Chad, we were opportunists. Furniture was going overseas. We had monthly plant closings. You know, we had these available buildings and a lot of available workforce. I mean, we had to swing for the fences and we had to have what I call a home run strategy. I mean, normally you're just trying to hit base hits, you know, get people on base and then score. But we had to really uh, get them around and have a home run strategy. So uh, the worst thing that could have happened is we'd have had 13, 1500 acres as an industrial park. But the best thing happened is Toyota decided to locate there. And we actually saw them twice. We saw them when they went to San Antonio with the trucks and they told us what was wrong with us. And then we corrected that. And when they came back in 2006, we were ready for them at that point in time. Didn't you all put together like a multi-county consortium to do that? Yeah. I mean, that, that's hard in itself. We put three counties together, three rural counties, and we got the highway named an interstate. Uh, went to Washington and did that, you know, first steps first. And uh, those three counties, 15 supervisors uh, actually voted toward the end of the process. We had lots of land options and they voted to go ahead and buy the site. Unfortunately, they never had to buy the site. 
because we landed Toyota, but they would have bought the site and they would have suffered a, they would have suffered a pretty di di difficult political future for that just because it was a lot of money. But uh, we had 16 visits. We had uh, over 40 people that came through during that selection process. Toyota met every Friday for two hours as their team, looking at all the sites. Our motto was win the visit, win the project. So it could really overwhelm me if you think about all that was at stake and what the future might be. But we decided to give them an experience and to do our very best every time they came into town. And sometimes we had two teams in town at the same time, and that, that was uh, challenging. You had an HR team or you had an environmental team or you had a transportation team and you had a, um, uh, an HR team or a, a labor team. So it was, a, it was a busy and challenging time, but it was exciting. And like I say, working with those folks, uh, it was an all-star team. And they, of course, the icing on the cake is when Haley Barber got elected in, in 2004. And I mean, he put us into overdrive because uh, he had some connections. You know, we had a problem one day. He called me one evening. And he said, how'd the visit go? And I said, well, Governor, we got this problem. He said, hey, we can, this is what we're going to do. And he fixed it. I mean, he fixed it overnight. So when you have that kind of a, a governor that's engaged like that, it really makes a huge difference. Well, and talk about working the back end of those. So I remember when I was in Mobile, we won a big steel mill. I was a low personal total pole. I was the project manager. <laughs> but I remember thinking the day we had the big announcement, this is great, not having any idea all the hard work that was about to come, <laughs> you know, now that they had announced. So how long after you won the project did you all have – you know, weekly team meetings or whatever, finishing the project. We were about 18 months in. If you remember, uh, we won it in 2007. Well, what came along in 2008 and 2009? Yeah. So we mothballed that plant after it came up, got up. It was under roof and it was, the floor had been poured and they idled that plant for 18 months. And of course, that was the hardest time. They had about 100 people employed already. They were in our incubator, you know, trying to do their hiring and things before they went into the plant. It was just a difficult time. A lot of people had a lot of anxiety. You know, we went up to 14, 15% unemployment. People were looking for jobs. Uh, we lost a lot of goodwill in that process because we had to stop. People that wanted those jobs didn't get a chance to compete for them because they had to take other jobs to make ends meet for their family. So we had a hard time restarting that back in the summer of 2010 trying to get that thing back up. Now they, they finished you know, ahead of schedule and they finished with 2000 folks, but that was the hard part of that project was to start and stop. We still have that plant manager. He, re, he retired in Tupelo. So uh, he's a good wow. friend. We, we get to play golf every now and then. Awesome. Well, let's transition a little bit to your personal story. Everybody knows how successful you are. You've obviously your name within the business. So tell us, what do you really love about your job? What gets you up every day excited after all your accomplishments? I think what gets me up every day is a couple of things. One is uh, there's never a normal day. I mean, every day is different. Uh, every day has its own trials and tribulations. Every day has its own triumphs. You have some long-term projects that you work on every day. You've got short-term things. Uh, you can make a difference in people's lives. As you mentioned, I was with uh, investor-owned utilities for a number of years. And, you know, when you lay your head down at night, you're making pennies on the shareholder dollar, which is not bad. That's the capital way of things. But when you lay your head down as a local developer on your head at night, you've actually helped someone get a job to pay their mortgage, to send their kids to school, to buy F-150, to, to do all the things that the American dream talks about. And to me, that's a great personal satisfaction is to be able to do that. My, fa my favorite day in this business, and we have it fairly often, we're going to have it here in a few weeks, we've got a plan announcement, is to walk through a plant that's been staffed up. People don't know you from Adam, but you get to see your friends and your neighbors at work doing productive work, having a job, uh, feeling good about themselves, pride in their work, 
and they really don't know who you are and they don't care, but you help them get that job on the line. But talk about growing up as a small kid. When you were 10 years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? What in, yeah. your, what in your raising built this foundation that, uh, that you built this career off of? Well, I'm the oldest of four kids, and we're all two years apart. You know, we always were fighting, and we we're always were scrapping, but we were always one team. You know, you, we could fight against each uh, among each other, but if somebody ever came against us, it was four against one for that person. Ten years old, I wanted to be a third baseman for the Atlanta Braves, Cleet Boyer, <laughs> or uh, you know Bob Horner. Those guys were some of my heroes, and I, I love sports. I was a wrestler and a baseball player. I threw papers at 12 years old, got a paper out, 176 papers, collected every month, door to door. Started work then and really enjoyed work, just the satisfaction of getting something done, but I enjoyed the paycheck. I enjoyed cashing that paycheck and having money for that time, cassette tapes and taking uh, ladies out at the, you know, 15, 16 years old when my, all my friends were worried about where the next dollar was going to be put in their gas tank, you know, so I had some means and worked two or three jobs through high school as well as uh, sports and then got to college and and really enjoyed learning in depth. Uh, my high school prepared me tremendously for school. So that's what I did when I was young. And then getting out was just trying to find, uh, I mean, I don't know that anybody except for Southern's program now, I don't think you study economic development or at least we didn't when I was going to school. You were in banking or maybe you were in marketing or maybe you're in something else and, and somebody finds you into this business, somebody like you or somebody else recruits and mentors. And I've had a lot of great mentees over the year. I think about Michelle Hurdle in Georgia and Allison Beasley there on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Blake Wallace in Hines County, Jamie Kennedy at TVA, Claudia Zimmerman in Germany, and Heather Sauls in North Carolina. These are some great people that I've worked with over the last 30 years, and I've got a great team here at CDF. You know, you just mentioned Hunter. You know, Shane Holman's another superstar, and uh, there's a lot of folks you don't see because they're behind the scenes making things work that are really, really good at what they do. So uh, putting things together like that, having your merry band of men and women to do good, you know, kind of like Robin Hood, you know, it's, it's what I enjoy doing. It's what turns my crank. Thank you, David. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. Be right back with a lot more with David Rumbarger right after this. I want to thank Location One. Some folks know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. Location One has, in my opinion, the best building and sites database in the economic development industry. I am often asked by economic developers, Chad, if you were an economic developer again, what would be the first thing you'd do? And it is without question, without question, first thing I'd do would be put my builders and sites on Lois. And let me tell you why that would be. Number one, I always did economic development in small to mid-sized towns, and one of our struggles was just getting eyeballs on our properties. That was our struggle. Lois overcomes that struggle for you. So the mistake I used to make is I would just put my buildings and sites on the state economic development database. Well, every time I did economic development, I was close to a border, so I was basically bordered another state. And anybody looking for buildings just across the way in the other state wouldn't find my buildings because I only had it on my state economic development website. I couldn't have made a dumber move looking back, but hey, it's what I did. 
When you advertise your buildings and sites on Lois, it goes to a nationwide database. So prospects looking for a certain site or certain building in the whole country can find you based on the parameters they put in. If they're looking at a radius, they're probably going to find you if they're looking in the state next door if your building or site is on Lois. It's also the most responsive friendly I have seen. So I love looking at buildings and sites on my iPad. I much rather look on my iPad when we're doing site selection work in the field than on my computer. Computer. And I have found Lois is basically the only big buildings and sites database I've found that works well on my iPad. A lot of the other ones, they just don't work as well. They tear the thing down. They don't remember your, your search query. If you put in 50,000 feet and you back it out, it forgets it. They're just hard to deal with. Lois is not. It's easy to use. It's just as easy for economic developers as it is site selectors. It walks you through inserting your information. So it tells you, place your gas line information here. Place your water line information here so you don't have to guess. You don't have to know code to make this thing work. But most importantly, once you push save, once you enter your information, it's going to go in a nationwide database, which is going to get a ton, a ton of eyeballs on your builders and sites. Way more than you'd get on them on your own if you just put it on your website or advertise it on the state economic development website. It also inputs ESRI data for radiuses of your buildings and sites. So a prospect's not just looking at a building or site when they find your information. They can actually see information about your labor force. You don't even have to put it in there. It does it for you automatically. This is the best buildings and sites database I have found. I encourage you to go to location1.com, sign up for a demo, see how this thing works. Transition to location one. You'll be real happy you did. Well, managing a large staff like you have there, what do you really look for in, in people? Because, you know, we do executive searches, so we're always guiding folks in hiring. And is there an attitude you look for? Is there a, a work ethic? I mean, before you know if they really got the skills or not, what, are, what have you found makes a good team member? Well, I think uh, millennials get a big knock these days because uh, people say they work differently. But I just say you hadn't found the right millennial. They have a, a real want to invest in communities. They, they are engaged. Uh, they want to be at every level. Uh, they work hard at something that they feel like is going to make a difference. And that's kind of what we look for. We look for people that have had a good record of hard work, people that, that want to accomplish something, people that understand goal-oriented working, because that's what we do. We are focused on our goals and uh, people that want to be able to help their community. So there is a an altruistic part of that. We want them to be engaged and involved. So when they're off time, they're helping at the animal shelter or they're running one of the festivals or they're doing other things within the community outside of what they do here at CDF. How have you been able to stay involved civically and still devote the time to your family? A lot of our executive searches, when we interview the search committee, you know, hiring somebody new, they'll say our last person did a good job, but they weren't as involved in the community as we wanted. They didn't show up at all the Rotary Club breakfast and this and that. And, and I understand, you know, that can be hard because sometimes people work for the public all day and night they want to go be private. So how have you been able to juggle all those balls and, and get yourself involved in the community more so than just your day job? Yeah, I think it's kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. You've got to be uh, more involved than just the job. The job, I remember in Hattiesburg, uh, one of the Saturdays, if you, those of you from Hattiesburg area or South Mississippi or Louisiana, you know about Hudson Salvage, don't you? Uh, Hudson yeah, Salvage yeah. is a salvage place that uh, goes around after hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and buys up everything and then puts it out discount. And so I was at Hudson Salvage in, in flip-flops and cutoffs and uh, 
met my chairman of the board who had on nice Bermuda shorts and was about to go play 18 holes. And my wife said, I don't think you can go to Walmart or Hudson <laughs> Salvage anymore on Saturday like that. Uh, you've got to step up your game. I mean, you've got to understand that it's a complete community, that other things do matter. Every one of my chairmen have a philanthropic cause as well as their service with CDF. They've also got their real job. And here in Tupelo, that's been one of the differentiators is that people get involved here. If you're a plant manager coming in from Boston or Chicago or, or Indiana, we're going to get you involved. We're going to put you into a, a civic club. We're going to get you involved with a not-for-profit. Uh, you're going to help serve the community in some way. And uh, that's just part of the process of developing leadership. And our leadership program here at CDF is actually two years, one year of training and then one year of actual service, serving on a board or in an organization for a not-for-profit. And they actually give you an evaluation and give you a pass or fail. Did you, were you a good board member? Were you a good community servant hmm. during that process? Yeah, so well, that's it, our DNA. It is part of it. I remember when I was an economic developer, you could, especially I was in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, which was a small town. And every time I went to Walmart, people would want to talk and we were having success. So they wanted, they were excited. They, they didn't oh, yeah. want to say, hey, you need to get out of town. But even then, it was stressful. And uh, so now I live in a big city in New Orleans. I can walk down Bourbon Street. Nobody knows me. So it's kind of a, it's a totally different dynamic. But I can go to Walmart now. Well, we had Bill Sisson on our show a few weeks ago. He's my mentor, runs the Mobile Chamber. I'm sure you know Bill from your time in Alabama. And uh, I work for him in Mobile. And he talks a lot about simple habits that make him successful. So I'd be curious to know, do you have any daily habits that kind of keep you on track that you would share with our listeners? Well, yeah, I've got a couple of them. I'm always, I've got two books that I'm always reading. I always read something that's, that's fiction. I like C.J. Box. I like some of the actions folks. And then I have a serious book that I'm reading as well as you know, I do read my Sunday school lesson, obviously week to week. But uh, right now we're reading Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game. And we read it as a staff. We've read Good to Great. We've read lots of other. And I've got a reading list that a lot of people want to know after they come here. You see the books behind me up here. We, we read them. We try to read them all and, and take the uh, concepts. You know, most time you read a business book, you're trying to memorize the whole thing. Well, that's not really what we try to do. We try to take one or two ideas out of that book that that author really has developed and say, what, how does that apply to us, our community, and what we do? In the infinite game, it pits Microsoft and Apple. And of course, everybody wants to know about what the difference is there. But Microsoft was after sales and Apple was after a lifestyle is the essence of that. And the lifestyle ended up being sales, but they didn't go after just the sales part of it, of course. But so that's a, a daily I do read. I try to do two other things every day. I try to either write somebody that uh, has done something for me, a thank you note, or I try to call somebody who's a friend uh, like you or others that I've known for over the years to try to catch up, keep those connections fresh and uh, catch up on other people's lives and really be invested in, in what they're doing because that's the connection, the human connection that connects us with what we do. You know, it's, it's just something that I enjoy doing and something that I, I mean, when you get a, a thank you note or a note from a friend that's uh, been on a vacation or been on a, a trip or something like that and they want to share their experience, that's a, a high honor to be able to be a part of that. And how about managing time? Do you block off time to make sure you get to do your work so that, you know, staff can't barge in and ask you questions or community? Or how do you, how do you make sure that you compartmentalize it? Because you, you're bouncing a whole lot of balls at once. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't do that, Chad. If, I, if I've got a deadline and I'm working on a project, yeah, I'll, I'll ball up and maybe it'll be one or two of us will be in there. 
uh, and we'll segregate the duties and responsibilities. I work off of lists. I mean, I got lists here with me today and, and I'm working them down and then I'll make another one. And then usually at the end of the week, I'll spend some of my time on Friday making the list for the next week. And then there's short term and long term on that list. Some things we've been working on for a number of years. Some things will just be next week. But I, I do try to keep all those balls in the air. And that is, I think that's an ability that economic developers have to develop. If you don't have it, I think you're less effective. Uh, because you end up being only a single track thinker instead of a multi-track thinker. In this business, you've got to be multi-track. And I, and I also have another saying, and my staff will laugh at me when they listen to this, but you can be a six-month expert. If you want to know about railroads, let's just take your example a minute ago. You want to know about railroads, uh, you can immerse yourself in railroad nomenclature. You can read about railroads. You can read about, you can go visit. You can take a train trip. You can do a lot of things in six months to become a railroad expert. And some of that stuff's going to stick. So the next time you got a prospect in, they talk about a right-hand switch or a left-hand switch or a side track or run around or something like that. You have a concept of what they're talking about. And then you can dig even deeper to be able to uh, help be some of that expert. You can converse with somebody like that. And my prospects have trained me about that over the years because they'd ask me questions I wouldn't know. And I say, I don't know that question, but I'm going to find out the answer. When I found out the answer, I figured I'd better know that answer more than just the answer next time somebody asked me that. So I would try to become a six-month expert on that, whatever it might be, whether it's uh, NACIS codes, whether it's uh, black belt training for uh, Six Sigma, whatever it might be, you know, immerse yourself in that and try to uh, become a six-month expert. You know, as I think back, some of the best salespeople when it comes to, and sometimes sales is the wrong, it's a dirty word, marketing people, let's say, in economic development are folks from utilities. I don't know if utilities just train a different way. Was there anything that you really learned in your utility days that, that maybe gave you a baseline of how to market and connect with people? I just, all over the country, I find some of the best folks we deal with work somehow <laughs> in the utility side of it. Well, some of my utility friends will laugh at this, but, you know, in the utility business, we used to tell them no three times and then do what they want. And <laughs> you don't get any customer benefit out of that. I mean, at all, because basically you've been talked into doing what the customer wanted. So we started working on how to say yes the first time through, even to difficult questions, you know, or at least not say no in the beginning and say, well, this is how that might work, you know. And so, it's detailed, it's defined. In other words, there's a, a, a specific quantity at a specific time that is needed at a desired price. So you have some limits on what you're trying to develop. Uh, unlike economic development, when you're kind of running in a big field and you're just trying to make sure you're meeting client needs. But in the utility business, it's very definitive. And then you're also boxed in either by consumer parameters, you know, by a public service commission that allows you so much on rates or by an engineering staff that says it's gonna cost X and your client's gonna to have to pay X uh, and you're trying to land the project and that's an extra cost. So you're trying to figure out how to get other money into the project, uh, sources and uses. That's where I first learned about sources and uses to be able to develop a, a spreadsheet on uh, what is it gonna to take to land the company and then what are the uses of that and could I find other ways to pay some of those uh, uh, uses besides just the uh, client's money. I had a project manager that worked for me at ADO in Alabama. His name was Joe Barry, and uh, he actually came all the way over, and we used to have knockdown, drag out arguments because he would take the client's viewpoint exclusively, and I said, Joe, you've got to remember, we are the state. We can't do that. He said, well, the client's asking you. He said, what are you going to tell the client? No. 
He's the client's asking you to client's asking you to solve his issue with this. And he taught me a lot in that regard. And that is to be a real advocate for your clients. And I mean, not to a point that you're obnoxious, but at the same time, they are your clients and they're the people that you're working for right then. And they're going to provide the jobs and the capital. You're not going to do it. And the government's not going to do it. And the other people in the town aren't going to do it. They're going to get the benefit of that. So you've got to paint that scenario to where the client is not necessarily always right, but they sure aren't wrong. Are they Chad? That's right. You, you got to start with yes in mind. I like that. Start instead of starting with no in mind, start with yes. And then work yourself to no <laughs> instead of no <laughs> working yourself to working yourself to yes. And you know, Alabama development office, I remember Linda Swan and all, they were really good about that. Working yeah. with them in mobile. They always, the, the ADO office seemed to try to start with yes, as I remember. They may get to no, but, <laughs> but they didn't start with no in mind. All right, as we wind down a little bit, we've talked about all your successes. Are there any mistakes along the way you wish you had to do over? Any real hard decisions that, uh, that came along the way? There's a couple of things in thinking about uh, those decisions. Uh, one is I went to Conway after Carolina Fire and Light for a number of months and made a mistake there because I really didn't align uh, my goals and objectives with the company founder's goals and objectives. And and so we kind of fought from the day one. It was a very tenuous period of time. And hindsight being 2020, I should have spent more time with him understanding his goals and objectives. I mean, he, he wanted to make money, but it's the way he wanted to make money and how he wanted to do it. And uh, the fact that he'd been there 40 years. You know, it's sometimes, and I find this in myself, it's sometimes for us older generation, we've already done it one way. We don't want to relearn it another way, but in, re in reality, we need to relearn it a number of ways in our careers and not just the same way. Because a lot of people rep try to replicate the same success over and over again. Every Toyota, you know, every project's a Toyota. It's not. Every project's going to be unique. It's going to demand different things. going to make you think out of the box. Gonna, you're going to have to innovate. You're going to have to uh, figure out what's meaningful for that client. Not what was meaningful for Toyota, but what's meaningful. And that means to listen initially really, really, really closely to what they're saying, you know, and understand where they're at. The second thing is, is I try not to do it. And uh, you and I've had this conversation before about making snap judgments on some folks. And I have misjudged people from time to time just based on uh, an advocacy position that they took that was really more of a position than it was a personality. And sometimes I regret that. And I've apologized to those people that I've offended from time to time when I've misjudged, uh, when they have been put in a situation where they had to advocate for something. Maybe they didn't believe, but they had to do it because that's where they were and that's what they did. I uh, had a lot of wars with engineers over the years, both in the utility <laughs> business and otherwise. And I understand their perspective. My dad was an engineer and maybe that's why we had a lot of wars. <laughs> Well, how do you want people to remember you? You've had all this success and you've told us what motivates you. What do you want folks to say about David Rumbarger when you retire and, and ride off to the beach? I was a good team member. I played well with others. I was a servant leader with any kind of position that they gave me. That I left CDF, I left the ADP, I left uh, ADO better than I found it. I was better for it and they were better for it. I think that's what anybody can ask. You know, sometimes you wonder about uh, the analogy, if you put your hand in a bucket of water and pull it out, what kind of impression you make. You know, you've got to be able to work with the system and you've also got to be able to improve the system. And if we could have improved the system over these years, then I'd say I was successful. Thank you, David. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. Be right back with a lot more with David Rumbarker right after this. All 
On June 4th, Next Move Group launched a new initiative called The Movement, which is really designed to do three different things. One, help economic developers improve their quality of lives by making more money. Two, helping economic development organizations land more deals. And three, by helping economic development organizations recruit jobs back home from China. You have probably seen emails of various different video courses that were sent out as part of the movement. And I'll tell you, so far, the two most popular courses have been these. One, board training for economic development board members and elected officials. What are their proper roles and responsibilities? And more importantly, what their roles and responsibilities are not. And our other bestseller so far has been how to help small to mid-sized rural communities build a systemic machine-like program to land manufacturing plants, where they don't just land one manufacturing plant, but where they land many manufacturing plants. We are selling these just one right after the next. So one, thank you. We have actually sold about 300% more memberships and revenue than we anticipated we would sell at this point in time. So thank you to all of our members. If you've not joined the movement, go to thenextmovegroup.com backslash movement to learn more about it. Thenextmovegroup.com backslash movement. You can either join on a monthly basis and receive all our content at once or you can just buy one piece of content at a time that's the next move backslash movement well, great is there anything you'd like to share with our audience i might not have asked you you know this is a great profession it's rewarded me tremendously over the last 30 years i have a few more years left in me so it's not time to sunset it quite yet challenges today are not unlike the challenges we had in the past they're just sometimes they're different they come at you in a different way and business is a lot quicker but in the same way business is a lot slower i, I find that we get to uh, the end with clients a lot quicker now than we did before because of technology but I find that clients take just as long to make decisions as they did before. And there's just as many questions that they have about trying to avoid risk and getting assurance. And that's what uh, economic development is about, right? It's about eliminating risk and uh, betting on the assurance. And so what we try to do with every client is to do that. And if people can realize what the aim is early in their careers and form their structure around that or their profession around that, answering questions, getting to yes, serving client needs, then they'll be well served in their profession. And tell our folks, uh, we got a lot of folks listening out west for whatever reason, in the west of the Rockies, we got a big following. So tell these folks about Tupelo. If they've only heard of Elvis Presley, tell these folks just, I mean, they, they may be shocked now to learn that you've won a Toyota OEM there. So sort of give these folks the Tupelo story. Well, we're halfway between Birmingham and Memphis, Nashville and Jackson, up in the northeast corner of uh, Mississippi. I-22 runs right through us. We also have the Natchez Trace, 1,200 or 444-mile scenic byway from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. Brings a lot of tourists and a lot of folks coming to visit Elvis's birthplace. It's the cradle of the blues, cradle of the rock and roll with Elvis here. And it's the edge of the Delta. Back in the 20s, Tupelo was a, a Delta town. Now, Delta's kind of sucked back east uh, or west of uh, 55, which is the north-south uh, from Memphis. But uh, Tupelo's still heavy into cotton and agriculture, uh, cattle, uh, soybeans, and others. So we're really an agribusiness business. But as I mentioned before, we're, we were heavy into manufacturing starting in 48. Since then, we were as high as 36% of our population was in manufacturing. We're down to about 21% now, but it's still twice plus the national average. Toyota, Cooper Tire and Rubber Company, General Atomics, 
a number of furniture businesses. You've got United Furniture. You've got a lot Ashley Warehouse, Ashley Mattresses. Ashley has their world mattress factory here in Tupelo. So we make more mattresses here than many, many places in the world. I don't have the My Pillow factory. That's still in Minneapolis. <laughs> I'm sure Mike will be down here any moment to, to open up a factory. Yeah. We pour a lot of viscous uh, foam down here. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of small businesses, machine shops, others, and we have one of the most active economic development training systems here with the community college and our local industries. Our local industries have bought in over the last 20 years and really work hand in glove. We have a 250,000 square foot training facility that's run by the industries and by the community college, and they're a great partner. It's a manufacturing town. It's a blue-collar town. It's got the largest rural hospital in America, over 700 beds, 435 physicians. It serves 18 counties and over three-quarters of a million people. So uh, we've had a real interesting COVID-19 situation because we've had two of our floors in the hospital dedicated to COVID-19 recovery and treatment over the last three and a half months. Obviously, we had to furlough some workers. They are all back now, thank goodness, and we're back to more of our normal routine schedule. It's a small town uh, with a kind of a big town. We got a symphony, got a ballet, got a great main street, got a new hotel going up, got a couple of new office buildings going up. But it's a still a small town, about 45,000 people, about 80,000 in the county. And got some great restaurants too. I've, I've had some good meals in Tupelo. Yes, sir. Well, David, thank you for being with us today. And folks, David, I mean, he really does love this profession. You can hear it come out of him. And we started our business six years ago and nobody knew if we'd make it or not. And David was always a phone call away. He was very accessible. I may not talk to him for nine months, but if I need something, I'll call him and it may be a 30 second conversation. But David, you have always helped me and I appreciate that. And, and so I want to say thank you for that. And thank you for being on our show. Well, I thank you very much. Our team thinks the world of you, and uh, I work with a tremendous uh, group of people here at the Community Development Foundation, folks that are really dedicated to both our profession and our community, and I appreciate the opportunity to tell their story. Thank you.